Good morning, everyone. I think I know at least most of you. A couple people I may not know. Yeah, but morning. And if you all want to open up, we'll go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. 15 to 23. If you could stand when you get there, we'll uh, read the word together. I'll sit just so you can hear me. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. And I'll be reading from the ESV myself. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the, Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity that we have to, uh, to gather together this morning to study your word, Father. And I pray that any uh, distractions that we might have uh, brought in this morning, any worries with work or home or family or whatever, might be put aside for just a little bit, Lord, so we can study your word and learn a little more about you so we can grow in our relationship with you, Father. Uh, be with me as I preach this morning. Help me to keep the frogs out of my throat and to, uh, to just get the message across well, Father, and to glorify and honor you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Be seated. All right. So, uh, so last summer, I did a sermon on verses 1 to 14 of chapter 1, if you'll remember. But uh, I thought it might be good for us to do a quick recap on what we learned from that section before we look at today's passage. We won't be spending too much time there, but remembering that section will definitely help our passage make a little bit more sense. So the main thing, the, uh, the core lesson, if you will, from verses 1 to 14, was that God really, really loves his people. Right? It, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, a rich or poor person, a uh, 21st or a 2nd century Christian, God loves his church. And everything from verse 3 onwards is part of this, this rich, awe-inspiring list of the things God has done to express his love for us. Verse 3 says that those in Christ have been given every spiritual blessing. Not just some, but literally all of them. All right? It's kind of crazy. Verse 5, we as believers get to be adopted as his own children. All right? you, are, you are automatically welcomed in as part of the God of the universe's family when you're saved. Verse 6, we've freely been given this grace. There's no charge to it. Seven, we've been redeemed through what was the single biggest sacrifice in the history of the world, Jesus on the cross. And through it, our sins are forgiven. Right? And this list just goes on and on and on. We've been given wisdom 
understanding and inheritance and the Holy Spirit who seals us as God's own. Right there, there is no comparison to how much God loves us. It is truly a one-of-a-kind love. And so in a very, very nutshell summary, that's kind of what 1 to 14 was about. But at the end of the section there, in verses 13 and 14, Paul begins to specifically talk about these Ephesians here and their belief. And so that's where we pick up from as we enter our section today. Paul's talked about how God has shown love to the general Christian, but now he's kind of zeroing in, he's talking specifically about the Ephesians and their relationship with God, now that they're believers as well. And the first thing he has to say to these Ephesians in verse 15 is that, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Now that's not to say that Paul only knew about Ephesus by what he heard. He himself had actually lived there for about three and a half years, give or take. From Acts 19.10, we know that two full years were spent teaching and preaching at the school of Tyrannus. So Paul undoubtedly knew the Ephesian church intimately. But the thing is, Paul was actually a prisoner in Rome when he wrote this letter. And so, unfortunately, he couldn't see their faith and their love firsthand. But he got it secondhand, perhaps through letters or uh, maybe visitors. Acts 28.30 tells us he was allowed visitors. But regardless on how he heard about their faith and love, the more important thing is his reaction in verse 16, where he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, obviously, being in prison, Paul's not there to teach and help strengthen this church. But as it turns out, that was okay. The church was still thriving. And for Paul, that was worth being thankful for. Because for him, it wasn't about being the leader that everyone looked up to. It was never about Paul's own glory in all this. It was about the church. It was about fostering a true faith in people, whereby they had a true relationship with God. One where they could go on out and be independent of Paul and not fall back into sin after he left. And Paul had equipped them as best he could. He says in Acts 20.20 20, that I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. So these guys were as well equipped as could be. It's, um, you know, it's kind of like being a parent. We parents don't want to, or getting ahead of myself, we parents want to raise and teach our kids so they can become mature enough to continue on without us around. All right, we don't want to be raising toddlers forever. At least I don't. I venture to say, you know, we consider ourselves failures if our kids were 40 and they couldn't make it on their own yet. The goal in being a leader in the church is to help believers grow in Christ to the point where they can grow in him independently of you. And so even though Paul is in prison, he can take so much joy in how healthy this church is that it says in 16 there that he doesn't cease to give thanks for them. He is overjoyed that it's thriving on its own, that he doesn't have to be there to spoon feed them truth. It is a continual unending source of joy for him. 
But then we get to verses 17 to 19, and Paul prays something maybe a bit unexpected. And it's a longer prayer, so I'll break it up to two parts. We'll call it A and B. So he prays for the Ephesians in A, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And part B, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So part A, let's take a look at part A. First thing I want us to look at in part A is the word for hearts at the end there and having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Hearts actually comes from the Greek word dianoa. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And the word actually means deep thought, uh, exercising the imagination, the mind, or understanding. And so the translation heart may be a little bit confusing. An easier to grasp translation might be understanding or mind, the eyes of your understanding enlightened. So just keep that in the back of your noggin as we keep going on. But moving past translations, if you were to summarize in a word what Paul wants from part A, a good word might be growth. Paul wants growth in the Ephesians' knowledge of God, which is more than just facts, by the way. It's knowing him as a father-to-child relationship. Paul wants growth in knowing God intimately as Christ allowed us to. The veil was torn, so we can have that intimate relationship now. And he wants growth in their understanding of part B, which we'll get into in a moment. Now, that's all fine and dandy, but a good question to ask might be, why is Paul praying this? Don't get me wrong. It's not that it's a bad prayer by any means, but Paul doesn't just put random things in to fill up his letters. There's purpose behind his words. And so why is he praying for the Ephesians to grow deeper as Christians? I think the answer is because the Ephesians needed to grow. Right? They were undoubtedly Christians. They had the sealing spirit from verses 13 and 14, and the church was thriving. But if you read through the entire book of Ephesians, you'll note that a lot of the book shows Paul's hope for growth. Chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, is another prayer on it if you want to take a look. Chapter 3, 17 to 19. In verse 17, Paul asks that Christ dwell in their hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of, God, of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants them to be able to come to a point where they can comprehend Christ's love so they can be filled with his fullness. And then Paul gives the church in chapter 4, verses 17 till about 521, some practical ways to grow in leading lives pleasing to God. Be angry and do not sin in 426. Uh, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking in 5.4. 
But some key verses in this little section here are from chapter 4, verses 22 to 23, which state that you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made anew in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Now, when Paul says you were taught, he isn't lying. All right, remember, Paul lived in Ephesus about three and a half years, which is longer than any other church, by the way. And he had taught them everything that they needed. As I stated earlier in Acts 20, 20, Paul says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And then in Acts 20, 27, I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to you. These Ephesians, they had been given everything. But we find in our passage, Paul is still praying for them to know God better and to understand the foundational principles of Christianity in Part B. They didn't seem to be growing the way Paul had hoped. And what's crazy is that the Ephesians actually did fall away. You'll remember that uh, Timothy was sent to Ephesus a couple of years after this letter. That's where we get First Timothy from. But even after Paul's three and a half years here in Ephesus, and this letter, and Timothy being sent there, they fall away. Revelation 2, verses 4 to 5, talk about the Ephesian church and how it has abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. That was Revelation 2, verses 4 to 5, if you're taking notes. And it's funny because verses 2 to 3 of Revelation 2 say that they do do works, and they're known for hating evil, enduring hardships, and calling out false prophets. But they had forgotten the relationship. They'd abandoned the love. They had grown slack in working to maintain and grow a relationship with God. And this, this is what Paul was praying against. He wants them to know God better and to grow in their understanding. He wants their relationship to grow and deepen. And now, I can't say for sure what may have tipped Paul off to them needing this prayer. Ephesus was a wealthy city. They burned in Acts 19.19 about 50,000 days worth, days wages worth of sorcery books. If you put that in modern day terms, that's roughly $6.1 million worth. And as far as we know, or, and as we know from Matthew 19.24, it's hard for a rich man to enter heaven. So maybe it was their wealth that began pulling them away from knowing God better. It's hard to know for sure. But regardless, being a Christian naturally means constant growth in your relationship with God. It means constantly getting to know him and his ways better, even if you know him pretty good now. Nobody knows him fully. All right? I may know Elissa, my wife, through and through. But, you know, it was just a little while ago that I learned about a drink she really likes from Starbucks. A, uh, a cold foam ice cap with cinnamon sprinkled on top. And you can jot that down in your notes as a lesson too. It's the most important thing you'll learn today, I'm sure. But, uh, but anyone who is married in this room will admit that you don't know everything about your spouse. And if we don't know everything about the most important people in our lives, how are we going to know everything about God? 
right? There's always room to know him better, to grow in him and to understand him on a deeper level. But that's essentially part A, a prayer for growth, to know God better and to grow in your understanding. Part B here is actually kind of a three-point prayer on some of the foundational principles of Christianity. Paul wants them first off to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, what is the hope that we're called to? Plain and simple, it's Christ, all right? Christ is where we put our hope, as it says in uh, chapter 1, verse 12. And that's it, all right? There is no other substitute for our hope in Christ. No other place to put your hope in. All right, you don't put your hope in the pastor and myself or Dex. You don't put hope in your own goodness. You don't put your hope in money. It is Christ or bust. He is the only hope that we've got to have our sins cleansed and to enter into a good relationship with God. He's the only hope we have to avoid spiritual death. And through him, we can approach God, who is now known to us as Father, free from the law and its regulations. Christ is our hope. The second thing he wants us to know is what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, this point is a bit of a troublesome one because there's two interpretations. One is that God himself gets an inheritance, and that inheritance is us. And the riches, in this case, is the, uh, the pride and honor that a believer can feel in being cherished so dearly by God. The other interpretation is that God has an inheritance to give, and he gives it to the saints. And the inheritance is this rich and amazing inheritance. Now, I subscribe to the second interpretation as to roughly 60% of the commentaries I read about this. And I do so just because it fits better in the context of the letter and the three points of this prayer. Ephesians talks more about an inheritance than any other New Testament book. And every other time it is clearly an inheritance for the saints. And in a moment, I'll explain how this links with the prior hope and upcoming power verse. But what might that inheritance be? Peter would describe it as unperishable, undefiled, and unfading in 1 Peter 1.4. Hebrews 9.15 calls it eternal. And so what is it? It's an eternal life with God. It's getting to be clothed with the imperishable new body, free from pain, age, and decay. It's getting to live in a world that's not battered and harassed and ran by Satan. It's free from temptation, sickness, evil, sorrow, and death. But most, most importantly, it's getting to be physically in God's presence forever. It is most definitely a glorious inheritance that ought to be desired. And the final point of this three-point prayer here is that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might. 
But you may have caught it already that Paul gets a bit caught up in talking about power here. And so I'll read what he continues on with. He goes on to say that it's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every power that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let's put this together now. Christ, just before he died, had all the sins of the world attached to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, Christ had all the sins of the world attached to him, and then he died this horrific death. He died like any other man, but with a billion times the sin attached to him. Now, logically, at that moment, when he had all that sin attached to him, he would have been the least likely candidate to be resurrected. All right, if, if we didn't know the whole story, but all we knew is that there was this guy who had the whole world's sin attached to him and he died, we would expect that guy to stay dead. We think he'd be the most unlikely person to be pulled away from death by God. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And not only that, he was raised and he was not brought back to earth. He was brought to heaven, a place far better than earth. And he was seated at the right hand of God the Father himself. He was given a position billions of pegs higher than all other powers conceivable. Christ went from literally the lowest position to the highest. It is quite the change. And so now think about this. If God exerted enough power to raise the person who had the most sin ever attached to him and put him in that position, to take the person with the most sin attached and seat him beside himself, does he not also have power enough to give us a glorious inheritance? That eternal life with him that we desire. Right? We've only ever had our own sin attached to us, but it's been wiped clean by Jesus. So there is no reason to think God doesn't have the power to give us the eternal life with him we desire as he gave life again to Jesus. And if he can give us that eternal life we desire, then is it not worth putting our hope in Christ? The man who took away our sin and died so we could attain that eternal inheritance. After all, who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8, 24 to 25. Our hopes are not yet fulfilled and we don't yet have our inheritance. But God has the power to fulfill our hope and to give us an inheritance unlike any other. And Paul wants the Ephesians to understand this. He wants them to understand these truths fully and believe in them. So that's essentially part B of this uh, prayer. 
and combined, parts A and B make for one amazing prayer for growth, relationally and in understanding. And they're not bad prayers for us to pray as well. You know, in fact, they're actually kind of a good model if you ever, I don't know, feel like praying for someone else. If you know someone who's going slack in their Christian walk, why not pray a prayer like this for them? Why not show that love and care for that person and ask God to redouble his efforts to help this person grow closer to him? It seems like a no-brainer to me, honestly. But that's all I've got for today, so I will attempt to get some lessons up here. All right, so lesson one. A good leader in the church wants to help believers grow in Christ to the point where they can grow in Christ independently of them. All right. No good Christian leader wants to be um, locked in place in the church, always um, being there uh, to spoon-feed people truth. A good leader wants people to grow themselves. Ideally, no one would be pastors because everyone would be capable enough to be a pastor. Everyone would have enough knowledge, enough understanding, enough, uh, enough of a relationship with Christ. We wouldn't need pastors. That'd be amazing if everyone, was, if everyone uh, knew Christ incredibly intimately. Lesson number two. The expectation for all believers is constant growth in their relationship with God. I had a friend once who uh, told me that you can't be uh, on the fence about God. You're either in God's lawn or in Satan's lawn. You can't be on the fence because Satan owns the fence. Right? You're either for God or you're not. You're either growing in him or you're not. There is no in-between area. And so all believers need to be constantly growing in him. Lesson number three. We can hope in Christ and eagerly await our eternal inheritance because God has power to fulfill our hope and to give us an inheritance. It is worth putting your hope in Christ. It is worth putting your hope in God. There's other places where people put their hope, but nothing comes even close to being as good as putting your hope in Christ, putting your hope in God. Any other idol is mute. Any other idol is nothing, has no power, but God has power. My final lesson here. Oh, good. Prayer for people who've become slack in keeping up their relationship with God is the loving thing to do. We as Christians, we don't want to hold God to ourselves. We don't want to try and keep him just for ourselves. We want to spread him out to the world. We want other people to have a relationship with him. And so if someone is um, having doubts, if someone is growing slack, getting caught up in the things of the world, why not pray for that person? Why not Show them that love. Why not show them, yeah, hey, we do want you to have a relationship with God. This is the best thing in the world. Don't lose it. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather this morning to study Ephesians, Father. And I pray that uh, we might take some of the things that we've either learned today or things that have been reinforced that we already knew and just take them out with us, Father, into the world, into our daily lives. Help us not to be people who grow slack, people who lose focus, Father, but help us to remain steadfast in you, Lord. Help us to pray for other people who might be growing slack. Lord, and pray for, just pray for our church, Lord. Pray for this church here, that the people in this church might grow close together, that they might become, if they aren't already, a family, Father, like a true family, loving one another, Lord. We thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.